Excellent. All right. Um, so I'm just going to start off with some comments. Um, uh, I really like the idea of bouncing off our other speakers. There's, there's some really interesting things that have been raised. Um, what I'm going to go through is a case study um, that's, that's on the table in front of you. I'm going to go through all the slides that have the background material for the case study. And then I'm going to go through them all again and point out um, like ta interesting tax and legal issues. The, um, but first I want to make a couple of uh, comments. Uh, and so uh, I really love the, the uh, economists' uh, discussion before about, um, about finding uh, files. Uh, one of the things we've trained our artificial intelligence leader to do is search over huge amounts of unstructured text. So if every law firm has a huge amount of data that's totally unfiled. So I get to go through people's uh, filing systems and go, oh, you've got 20% of your stuff in some semblance of terrible filing. Um, you know, and as you were saying before, you know, there's a little bit of metadata on, on some of them. Um, the only real way of, of searching through a huge amount of unstructured text, just you know, documents that aren't labeled properly, or finding something important within those documents, is with um, artificial intelligence that comes to a natural language understanding of the English language or whatever language you're dealing in. So therefore you can go, I want to find a clause that says this, I want to find this, and, and then send it off. Or alternatively, you can have an army of juniors who go off and do that, and you know, lock them in a dungeon somewhere doing discovery. Doing discovery. So, Moving on from like how I see like AI fixing some of these problems or um, potentially fixing some of these problems, some comments on on Bitcoin. So it's an interesting idea that token that a token is a property. Now, one thing that that I find happens in Bitcoin discussions is there is a disconnect between what's practically happening and the initial theoretical or the initial creation. So I just want to create a dividing line, really simple dividing line if you're dealing with Bitcoin uh, and you really want to you know, try and cut things down simply. Ask the client how much did they pay for them for the Bitcoins. If they paid less than $100 approximately, um, they would have bought it for say 2013, it's going to be kind of complex. Now, um, if it's later than that, it's going to be actually you know, relatively simple. So the complex part is when it's initially created, if you want to get a Bitcoin, you're going to have to download some code, you're going to have to compile it. You can create a Bitcoin address, you know, private key, public key, you see all these, every time you're a lecture about Bitcoin, you go through the public key, private key. But the points about intellectual property that I wanted to hit on is there isn't a contract so there's licensing, but uh, a distributed ledger is a program that a whole bunch of people around the world run. No one's in charge. No one has any legal rights or enforceability against each other. There's no contract. In fact, expressly, they will only go by the code. And that is the, the um, interesting part about it. That's what attracts them to it. There is no legal recourse. So how can you create a property right out of that? Who's the right against? Uh, um, Lee was saying before that the, that the hallmark of, of, of these rights is that 
you know, they're not like real property, but it is a right against someone else. Who do you enforce Bitcoin against? No one. It's so it's not it's not currency that's you know created by statute or perhaps the, the thousands of, of years. There's no contract. You know, it's it's more like it's um, principally similar to an accounting ledger whereby you know, debits and credits are are recorded. That's what that's what the blockchain is. Really nice accounting ledger. There it is in one line. <laughs> Demystified. Um, but an accounting ledger is controlled by one person. This is a set of rules for creating an accounting ledger that if you interact with it, um, it, it, will, it will happen. A better analogy is if you played Space Invaders and you get a high score. Now, that high score exists only on that game. You can't enforce it against anyone else. You can go and edit the code, but it's only going to be... But, um, and, and one of the reasons why Bitcoin was created and the blockchain was created was so that people can't edit the code, so that everyone has a shared um, consensus that they're, that they're working together on. So is your Space Invaders high score an asset? Don't think so. I, I can't see it. It's not enforceable against anyone. You can yell at your computer. I'm trying to channel war Danny here. You can yell at the parking, um, the, uh, parking meter. Um, uh, and, and it is similar to a, um, you know, a, a vending machine um, or a parking machine has a set um, of, of rules that if you put money in, then you spit this out. You can't argue with it, you can't reason with it, it will remain unmoved. Hacker and hacker. So it's difficult to see how that is an asset. To my mind, the asset is the confidential information that is your private key. So this means that if I wrote my private key down, and I've got some private keys in about this long, I wrote it down, I stuck up a frisbee, and I threw it to you, I've transferred all of the rights that go along with it to you, being that private key. You throw it back, throw it back, you just created like five CGT events, and given the value <laughs> of Bitcoin goes up and down, um, who knows, we're going to have some fun on our tax return. Now, that's, so, um, if you have a long key written down somewhere, then that applies to you. It's probably when you bought Bitcoin before 2013. But no one does. Almost no one does. What you do now is you buy Bitcoin through a wallet. Um, the only way of getting a Bitcoin into your private key is you might have to mine it or someone has to transfer it to you. Um, and people don't really transfer it just you know, unless you're selling something. So there needs to be some kind of transaction there. But if you wanted to go out and get Bitcoin, you go up and open, say, a Coinbase or Coinjar wallet. You do, do it on your app, uh, do it on your, your iPhone, you know, do a bit of know, know your customer um, questionnaires, and, um, and then it'll set it up for you. And what they do is they hold that securely for you. And, but it's their private key that they're holding on behalf of you. So what that means then is there is a contract, there is an asset, and that asset is the contract between you and Coinjar. Just like that you don't have money in the bank, it's not an asset of yours. The asset that you have is the contract between banker and customer. So you can't, you know, can't declare trust over half of the, uh, half of the, uh, the dollars in your bank account. But you can declare trust over all of it. So I can declare trust over my, my uh, licensing agreement with CoinJar. 
So then we come to the problem of like, how do you put this in trunk? How do you declare uh, a trust? Or you have this in a trust. It's quite problematic. On the, if you're an early adopter, the only thing I can think of is that you take that private key and you specifically declare that you're holding that confidential information on trust. Alternatively, you're going to need to get your coin jar account and declare that you hold a whole bank account on trust, just like a uh, uh, lampshade um, would um, declare that you know, it holds the whole uh, bank account on, on trust or leave it, leave it on, on trust. And so you could do that. Um, or to, now, it's actually quite difficult from a practical perspective to set up an account as an entity. Like I'm not going to say that I've exhausted a lot of them, but I've had a look at a number of them. And you know, I don't know anyone that's, that's properly set up a crypto account in a company or another entity. They've done it in their own name, and then they've said, oh, I'm holding it you know, generally on some kind of amorphous um, uh, legal um, relationship. And I was saying before that I think it's, it's um, so for tax perspectives, you're almost always going to have it on a revenue account. Because what people practically do is they buy and sell it. Now, a lot of the excitement has been over the last few years of whether it's a CGT asset, what's a CGT asset. In my view, it's um, mostly on revenue account, it's trading stock. Um, it sort of simplifies a lot of the, the, the taxation problems. I've got to say, the, uh, the, um, the, the ATO view is probably a bit more generous. Um, another point I wanted to um, respond to was has been a couple of mentions of the different of um, of machine learning or artificial intelligence and, and, and ethics and the import, and making it explainable. And I think that's a sort of interesting and noble concept, but it stems out of misunderstanding between the difference between statistics and machine learning. There's a really interesting joke that goes around that you say that says, if you're fundraising, you say what you're doing is artificial intelligence. When you're hiring coders, you say there's machine learning. Uh, but when you're implementing, it's just a regression. So, so, so one, there's a lot of pe people who will hype things up and say we're building this cool AI for, you know, AI for the blockchain or something. Um, but then they, they actually just implement some kind of regression. Now, a regression is a causal relationship between between things. You know, it's your basic science. Like, I have a hypothesis, I test it, and, and, I, and I see this outcome. Now, um, there's obviously problems of, of causality, um, but you're trying to find a particular relationship. That's science. Machine learning is an art. It just works. It's engineering. The like, um, when... Uh, when the first airplanes were flown, no one said, oh, we don't have the physics that, that really explain this. It's like, no, it just flew. Or, or didn't. The same is the idea that a billiard player acts as if they know all of the complex physics when they're making um, a, a billiard ball, uh, when they're trying to hit their billiard ball in, and you can say, well, they're acting as if they have calculated out um, all, of the, all of the physics and interactions between the balls, they're acting as if this. But they don't actually know. And if you said, I want you to explain where each of these balls were going to go, you can't. 
So when you have a neural net, it's going to go through a number of layers. It's going to take some data, and each layer is going to spit it down into another layer and, and ultimately um, uh, try and optimize for something. The only test is, does it optimize for the thing that it's said to do? So for example, Facebook might be optimizing it, your feed for your engagement, for clicking likes, or some other thing. Now you might say that optimization is bad. The way of actually explaining AI is by testing it. Just like in science, you generally don't have an understanding of how the world works, but then we go out and test it. Like, we don't really know what um, if there's anything smaller than a Higgs boson, but we test it. And we get evidence and go, here's a hypothesis to support it. So that is how you can try and come to an understanding of what um, machine learning does. But the idea that you can say, let's write this out, like that's just not AI. I mean, unless you define AI in a very simple way that, that includes like anything that, that, that mimics something that a human does. In which case, you're probably going to pick up Leonardo da Vinci drawings and the Antikythera mechanism as examples of AI. So one more, and I thought it was, it was interesting, um, uh, Norik was mentioning before about um, uh, IP licenses. Um, uh, and uh, licensing intellectual property from one entity to another, from your, from your entity that holds the licenses um, to your trading entity. This is something that's commonly used for obviously for a structuring perspective because you're going to want to hold safe assets like we've just spent you know, four hours going through how valuable your digital assets are and we, we want to hold them as far away as possible from your risky trading entity that could potentially go bust and so you have a license agreement between them but there's some kind of important timing and there's some important um, you know, pieces in, when you're drafting this so if you have an existing business oh no, so let's start from the, the simplest one you start off, you start creating some IP, you say, I own it in IP company, and I license it across. Sure, that's fine. Um, but if you've been trading in one company, in your IP company, and you say, cool, we're now going to license the IP across, if, you're trans if you transpass all of the pieces that run that business, surely all of the goodwill must pass. At Murray's case, and we say, if I pass all of the bricks across, or like all of the pieces of my taxi license, or I, or I take a hotel and I send, take across all of the bricks, if I pass everything across, surely I must have passed the goodwill. If you're running an intellectual property based business and you transfer across all of the intellectual property or license it across somewhere, surely you have transferred that all of goodwill across, and surely you have created a CGT event. Now, of course, you need to, to therefore be careful when you're doing that. So you want to, say, license it, but say, make the other person an agent. So they're not ever, that, so that they're acting on behalf of the first person. Um, and you can license it all across quite simply at the beginning. It doesn't matter, there's, there's no goodwill to pass across. Uh, so with that, with that um, rocket into some uh, miscellaneous issues, I'm now going to go through the, um, uh, the, the first cut of the, the uh, case study. Now, this is an amalgam of a case of you know, a number of their clients I've seen in some uh, tech examples. Um, and so the idea, Uber for tax. There's a uh, creative and brilliant CEO, um, uh, Travis Newman, and there's a clever and diligent CTO, Larry Grimm. Uber tax is a two-sided marketplace. Um, so there's 
um, like, like Amazon or Uber or Airbnb uh, to match people who have ta want tax advice with um, providers. Now, now, Larry, while he was studying computer science, he developed a really cool algorithm that matches people based on decision, uh, on uh, game theory, and, you know, um, and some machine learning, and he called this Optimax. Um, and his original idea was to, to use it to match um, Star Wars collectible merchandise. You know, people buying, selling Chewbacca, and go, let's, let's uh, match it with someone who wants a Han Solo. Um, that Travis said, this is a terrible idea. You should instead, we should create UberTax. Um, I'm a commerce student. I know all about this. Um, I'll do logo branding, advertising. Let's go. So they create a minimum viable product. So this is the, uh, the way of building things now. We go out and we create something that's really small and tests it, and, and then out we go. So he bought a domain, so Larry, in his personal name, bought the domain name, Ubertax, um, from GoDaddy, or registered it there. He downloaded a, a WordPress template. He purchased a, um, some licenses for, for WordPress, pays hosting, and set up a PayPal account to, to receive money. Installed a plugin, found some code shared freely on GitHub. A lot of code is shared freely. Interesting, I have one of my developers after spending a couple of months doing something this. Um, this would be uh, uh, really helpful for other people who want to do this. It's, it, was, it is from Ukraine, so this is the point. <laughs> this would be really helpful if we shared this with other people, we'll put that on GitHub. I'm like, okay, that's really nice, but that's mine. It's a different viewpoint, but I'm like, um, I, uh, you know, on the other hand, I was like, this is really nice that you're thinking like, you know, someone sitting in your shoes, you would have, you, know, you want to save them time. Um, set up a Facebook account, um, uploads Optimax to run on AWS cloud server. Data. So Travis, what he brings to this is he said, I need to, I need to sell it. So he looks around the university and says, uh, uh, I'm going to look at all the class subjects and I reckon and I can rip all of the email addresses from class subjects that I can find. I can get 10,000 um, email addresses, export them to an Excel spreadsheet. Um, uni, uni students have never used professional services before, perfect crime market. Um, uploaded them to a MailChimp account which does um, uh, newsletters and then began sending newsletters out and telling them about how great it is to do tax on time. And um, they directed them to the new website. The track the, um, oops. The, um, the traffic to the new website improved its rankings in Google. Um, and over time, people shared his, his newsletter and it grew to 15,000. Um, some people dropped off because they didn't like just being spammed, <laughs> uh, unsurprisingly. Based on all of this data that's come through, Larry and users um, on the site, including users from the, the, the newsletter, Larry further trained Optimax. Now the business model, this is the business model. It's really simple. The user goes onto the website, they enter data into the form, they enter their credit card details, Optimax matches them with a, an advisor, charges them $100 on behalf of Ubertax, PayPal holds the money, takes $3 out, pays um, Ubertax, the uh, joint bank account of Travis and Larry, um, having taken out a $3 service fee, 
and then UberTax pays $70 to the accountant to do the return. They start doing really well. They get 50% monthly growth, which means at the end of the first year, they were doing uh, $136,000 a year, which is nice. Um, and so then we've got some we've got payments to service providers, PayPal fees, domain registration, WordPress templates, the things we went through before. Uh, done some advertising. Um, outsource international contractors on Fiverr. It's really common for people um, uh, to like, find like online outsourcing uh, contractors um, and say, here, I want you to design some logos. Or, you know, do this for me, like a really small path. Um, and we've got some drawings for, for Travis and Larry. So they decide that they're doing well after, after the end of the first year and that they're going to drop out of university, go the startup route, and raise some money. So they incorporate a company. Uh, so they own, they decide they're gonna own 50% of the shares each in their own, their own names. They set up bank accounts, register a trademark, and a patent. They then get a, a wealthy local uh, property developer, George Pappas, to invest in a safe note. Now, a safe note is a relatively newish instrument about 2014 onwards, invented by Y Combinator, which is a, um, a startup accelerator. Um, and it overcomes the problem of trying to value shares in a high growth company that possibly doesn't have great revenue. And so what happens is you, it's called a simple agreement for future equity. And so you put in, say, $100,000, and you just essentially kick the valuation can down the road. And you say, we're going to join in um, at whatever the next valuation is. So there's either going to be a valuation when another investor invests and, and values, or you IPO, or you go and sold it. And now there's generally a cap on that. And the valuation cap means that it, um, it will not be valued more than this amount. So there's a, essentially a minimum amount of equity that the investor must get. You want, there's no interest on it, you don't have any shares in the meantime. And it's quite common for them to have a, a discount. So you say, whatever the next liquidity event is, um, I'm going to get it as if I had got it on a 20% discount. That's the incentive for investing in Europe. Um, and then they got $100,000 match funding from a government grant. There's, there's a number of grants that go around that, are, that, that have some kind of match funding. Um, this is relatively normal. Poor buggers probably spent three months applying for it. So the funding, here's what they do with their money. They give them um, each, a, uh, each a salary. Um, so Travis spends his time managing the company, negotiating capital raise, onboarding new service providers, arranging sales and marketing. Larry further trains Optimax and also undertakes the redevelopment of the website to allow a better integration of the algorithm. They hire an offshore developer to do some of the coding work with Larry. They engage a local Adelaide advertising and consulting agency to design the customer experience for the improved website as well as advertising. They rent a co-working space. They hire an attractive local assistant to respond to customer inquiries and questions, create an office procedural manual, get NDAs and employment agreements and, and non-competes non -competes in a shareholder group. And then Travis decides gets an opportunity for growth. He takes out a $50,000 personal loan so that Uber taxes six months cash flow and they hire Bill Jobs. 
for 100 grand um, as a salary package, Bill receives $2,000 of his salary by way of an employee share plan that operates as follows. Now, this is really weird, and this is based on something that I've seen from a couple of places. This is apparently being used by a large, like uh, a top tier law firm that has a number of you know, well-respected tax lawyers, but I don't think they were really consulted in this. This is just odd. Um, and um, uh, so each year, UberTax grants Bill $24,000 of unvested convertible notes that convert the next liquidity event um, at the lesser valuation of a $5 million valuation camp. And each year, uh, the loan, uh, it loans Bill $24,000 to buy those unvested convertible notes. So the money's going round in a circle. Bill must commit $2,000 of his salary per month to repaying this loan. And for each $2,000 he repays, $2,000 of the convertible notes will vest. Um, and I didn't make this up. Um, so on a liquidity event, the unvested convertible notes disappear. And finally, the bank. So Bill Jobs um, takes the Optimax algorithm, does a great job um, applying it to Facebook data. Their marketing goes, goes through the roof. They get an offer from Oak Tree Capital for $500,000 at $4 million, $4 million post money valuation. But then, Travis uh, has been acting inappropriately to the attractive local sales system. Uh, and also, um, Larry finds out about the repurposing of Optimax. It's furious. Um, Travis is, is kicked out. This is a succession. Uh, I would ask to write a succession paper. So I brought this to here. So let's let's now here's some tax issues that I see in this. I want to go through. So first of all, we've got different forms of commonly encountered IP, copyright, trademarks, patents, goodwills, and licenses. We're going to go through the tax treatment of those IP and intangibles. We're going to look: is there capital depreciating R&D black hole deductible GST single or multiple, multiple assets? Um, then you've got to think about the optimizing of the business structure. So you're, you've got to look at your um, IP, your asset protection, your capital raising, your R&D grants, um, early stage investor, investor concessions, taxing on the way in and out, you see both in and out, and of course, um, research and development tax credits. Now that's way too much to do in the sort of 10, 15 minutes I've got left. Pardon? 10. 10. So I'm just going to have a stab at these. Um, now. Questions, what, what tax issues do we see here? What are the, what are the IP issues? So they've just started off. It's their idea. Who owns it? Is the IP owned by Larry? He's created it by himself. Is he running a business? Star Wars collectible merchandise, is there any expense in there? Probably not, it's his, it's his own hobby. So don't need to worry about deductibility. Um, uh, who owns the logo, the branding, the advertising, Travis, but they've probably come together in, in a partnership. Have they registered for for a taxable partnership? Because it seems that they have the intent to create a partnership when they come together. Minimum viable product. So they, they're um, domain names. So they've bought the domain name. They don't actually ever own a domain name. It's sort of registered that you own it, and there's a company like GoDaddy or one of the others that, that, that 
maintains it for you. So, so now, is it, is, that a, is it a deduction? Is it an asset? I mean, it doesn't depreciate. You've got to pay a license fee every year. Um, uh, is it, I mean, you're probably going to list it as an asset that, that you have. Um, you're um, probably expensive um, for, as a license fee. But in a way, it's a necessary thing for a capital asset to be able to have this website out there that holds, like, that, that is your building, that's where all of your stuff comes from. Like, buying your domain name, isn't that a capital asset? You probably, you know, maybe it's small and you're expensive or expense under something else. And you look at your WordPress web, website template. Again, so, you, so in here you're getting a, a, a bunch of code that you're buying off someone that they're going to sell to a number of different people, uh, and then you're going to fiddle around with it to to, to implement it. So now, um, is this um, let, like let's run through the, the things? Is it is it deductible? Is it um, is it depreciating assets? Not really depreciate. Well, in a way, it depreciates pretty quickly. Um, um, the, the ATO often look at website expenditure as being capital expenditure, which you know, right up over a number of years. But, but you know, you're gonna, if you're spending most of your money, and this is all of their money, um, at, at the start off by building this website, you're gonna want a deduction for it. They don't care about depreciation over a number of years, they're gonna make losses. Um, the other thing is, um, how does this fit in with your research and development tax credits? Well, I mean, the simple answer is you need to be a company, and these guys are not. So you, you miss out on your R&D tax credits entirely. So they've purchased their one-year uh, license for Gravity Forms. Um, uh, that's a license fee. That's probably, um, you know, you put that towards deductible. Um, I mean, are they running a business at the moment? They probably have the intent of running a business. Um, and so, it could be black hole expenditure if it's not um, already um, deductible. So you're paying license fee for hosting. That's your, again, it comes back to is this revenue or capital? Is, is your hosting fees, like if you're really looking at this technically, should you be paying your hosting fees? Like your, um, should you be expensing them? You probably are expensing them. But are they more accurately capital? The ATO has some rulings out on this that are quite clear where site development um, is, is capital depreciated. Um, so um, setting up code um, shared freely on GitHub. Now again, now, um, from, a, from an asset perspective, you've got, you've got some licenses that can go from time to time. Your assets that you've just downloaded here, they're, they're stored on your, on your GoDaddy server, which is someone else's server, um, and so, and so these licenses that you you've, uh, that you put here are subject to a number of other licenses. From a tax perspective, you know, your code shared through the GitHub. But um, you set up a Facebook business account. Now, uh, this, like these are more like your your an asset question. This is uh, your Facebook account. Um, like I know people who will buy and sell. Um, Facebook and uh, Instagram accounts. You're, it's, you're expressly forbidden from them in the terms of service. You can go on plenty of websites and, and they're listed. Um, and they can go for large amounts of money. Now, um, so practically, they do have value. Practically, people do sell them. Practically, like, explicitly, it's, again, it, it's, 
it's against the terms of service. And if, and if Facebook or Instagram find out that you've been that you've sold your account, you can only shut it down and you lose the whole thing. Um, but you have but you set up this Facebook business page. Now who is the owner of that? So you can set it up in a company name or in your personal name. But what happens if you split? Like you, you can't you can't apply this. Um, the, the controls over it are, are, are really contractual. Um, and it can be immensely valuable. Um, and then you upload your Optimax algorithm on AWS. So interestingly, if you're running your, um, your actually your backend engine, so here you've got gravity, uh, you've got um, uh, like you could construct this so that the entire thing is occurring overseas. In which case, where is your principal? Like where is your permanent establishment here? Now here, these um, uh, they have. Uh, only a personal presence in Australia, so uh, it doesn't matter. They're going to be taxed on, on all, all of the revenue. Um, but you can specify with your Amazon web server that I want it to be in Sydney, or that I want it to be uh, in, uh, in Singapore, or, or somewhere else, or, or in multiple places, or moving around. So now your data. So it gets this. Um, uh, a, a whole bunch of, of university emails in an XLS. Now, has he ripped these inappropriately? Like, are they stolen? Probably they're, um, you know, as a general rule, the university terms of service have buried someone which is not allowed to take it. But scraping email addresses, it, you know, particularly if they're publicly available, is that wrong? Is, is, it, is it right? But let's just let's just say there is some cloud over it, at least, so their authenticity, and particularly since well, um, they're certainly breaching uh, privacy regulations by doing that. If they were a large enough company, but they are they are small, so uh, they kind of escape through most of the privacy regulations in Australia. So they steal a whole bunch of university uh, uh, of emails. And they copy them to an XLS and uh, an Excel spreadsheet. And so now they've got they've got one asset, and now they're duplicating it off to their Mailchimp account, controlled by someone else. And Mailchimp, if they, if they think that you're being naughty, they'll shut everything down. So you now have like if you're if that is the sole residue of your your asset, you could lose it. And this is, this could be valuable. Um, a mailing list mailing lists have been very valuable for 30 years. Um, over time, you're growing this, growing the mailing list. Again, now you've you've taken this this asset from the university, potentially um, uh, being quite naughty about this. Um, who is who owned? Like, let's just say the university had some claim to you over that mailing list. Then you um, then it spreads organically, and you grow from ten thousand to fifteen thousand. Do you like if the university said cut out your ten thousand? Do you need to get rid of the whole fifteen thousand or just the ten? Because people have shared it and they've willingly wanted to be on that list. So this is confidential information. Uh, now, what is the trust relationship between yourself and the university? Um, you know, again, we've got to come back to the question of how naughty have you been in this? Yeah, that um, useful yeah, I, there's, the, there's the student email address problem. I just thought I was going to um, just skim over that for the purposes of the. Uh, uh, I don't know how it's going to be, you know, the, the asset, you know, the life of the asset, isn't it? You know, 
it's a monetized value, but a monetized value for a defined period of time. Yeah, mind you, um, I still email people that I've known for 20 years. So, yeah. um, so from my, I've got my original Gmail account, and there's yeah. so yeah. And I'm still on some damn email lists from 20 years ago. Oh. <laughs> um, but then, further training Optimax, and this is what I want to think about the, the transformation of an asset. So now you've taken data. Let's just assume that the university emails are wrongly acquired. Even just go like they've been criminally acquired. But then you're using that data to train an algorithm, but you create something entirely new. There is none of the original data there. None of the emails or none of the actions come through into the algorithm. Let's just, um, let's just assume that's how the machine learning algorithm works. Is there something wrong with that algorithm now? Is it tainted? I don't think so. Just say you had stolen that as a breach of copyright, and then, like you said, you, you, you stole someone's data, and then you said, I'm going to train an algorithm on there, and that algorithm, like, but it's, a, it's an entirely new work of art. Um, you create it essentially from inspiration. It's not an amalgam of, of pieces. Um, business model. So one of the things interesting about this business model, and this is not an uncommon business model because these um, uh, two-party, uh, uh, so a two-sided marketplace um, tech players are quite common. So they're entering data into the form, they match them, but the other person does the work. So how much GST is payable? Because eventually, we, we see at the end, they get to $156,000 turnover. Assume they get there to $156,000. Well, within the first year, that's their net income. That's the net amount that they've, they've received. It's come through the bank account. At what stage do they need to register for GST? The, GST, like the turnover threshold being $75,000. They're growing exponentially at 50% per month. If you expect that you're going to be over $75,000 this year or next year, then you must register, you're required to register. If you're growing exponentially, do you just draw a straight line? Like maybe they, they have a, a speed bump and they go, oh no, we're gonna, we're gonna end up with you know, $40,000 revenue a year. Because really if you cut two months out, that's where that would be at. But here we have uh, a classic tripartite agreement. So sure, they're taking in $100. Um, but they're paying $70 out. The service that they are providing is not $100 worth of um, professional services, accounting services, because the accountant does their tax return. The, the thing that is happening is the... the the supply is coming from the accountant of accounting services to the user. And so, oh, and, and so um, Uber tax is, has a supply of $30 of matching services. And so, and so for GSC purposes, they only have $30 worth of revenue. Not 100. They don't need to remit 111 for the 100. Similarly, 
Um, so they're going to get uh, GST um, taken out by PayPal on that on uh, on that three dollars. So and of course um, uh, Uber tax. Uh, sorry, the, um, the the accountant is doing seventy dollars worth of fees. Uh, they're going to pay remit one eleventh of that to the ATO, and they are and they are supplying to the. Um, uh, to, the, to the end user, and the accountant um, is uh, now. The, the question is: Is who is being charged for um, Uber Taxes services? Is it the accountant who's probably registered for GST? And if they are, then they can claim an input tax credit for the just under three dollars worth of GST. Or alternatively, is it the user who's probably not registered or required to be registered? Probably the user. Um, so, um, let's just put that one. So, some problems with the, the, the company. So, first of all, they're owned, the company's being owned here by them personally. Obviously, it's going to have problems with your, your asset protection. All of these licenses and stuff they had at the beginning, you know, how do they transfer them in? There's definitely some CGT assets there. There was a whole bunch of CGT assets, um, and including some goodwill, considering that they're, you know they're having at least 136,000 net revenue. But you know, um, there there is some value to it. There's a CGT event when they when they transfer over. Have they done um, a rollover into the company? And they're registering, registering some further trademarks and, and, and patents. Now the um, now the safe note. So the safe note's an, an asset, um, but it's um, but what kind of? But it's not a disposable shares form. It's not a loan because um, it's not debt. It's an equity investment. Um, uh, but it re but um, I uh, but well f and it's and it's 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 not it's not a debt for the purposes of, of the debt equity borderline in um, Division Nine Seven Four because it's not certain that they'll get their money back. So there's not a hundred thousand dollars that's definitely coming back to George Pappas. It's not um, that's that's the, the debt test. He could, they could lose everything, in which case he gets nothing. Um, how do we, how do we treat it? So, how are they going to, um, so they're getting, they're, they're probably going to have an unfortunate CGT event if they're not treating it as a, uh, as a loan of some sort. So you're going to have, um, so it could be uh, a D1 event or an H2 event. The, um, the so you just have to be careful with the drafting of that because this is a, uh, a U.S. construct. It's built for U.S. tax law. I see a number of people who have copied the nice Y Combinator um, uh, precedent, which is really quite nicely written, to be honest. Um, but not taking account of this. Now, in my view, the safe notes do pass the requirements. For an early stage investment company, for an ESIC, 
um, and, and um, provided that it's a technology company. Your hundred grand match funds, you're going to have to you're going to pay tax on that. Now, the real purpose of, of some of these questions about what you're using the funding for is to, is for your R and D tax credit. So, some just some points: your offshore developers, you're not going to be able to claim that your R and D tax credit. You can get up to forty five percent back of your losses. It, it, it's uh, it's huge. Their salaries, we, so they're sure they're getting a salary. Um, Travis managing in markets, um, probably not towards your R and D expenditure, but Larry training Optimax, um, uh, yes, and and the reintegrating it to the website that would be supporting materials that you could do. They're going to need to really set out a scientific method if they're going to want to claim their R and D tax concession. The Adelaide Design Agency, which is doing website work, possibly some of the expenditure counts towards R and D. Your um, co-working space, yes. Your sales assistant, uh, and no. Your office procedure manual. Now we're looking at another type of intellectual property that they've, that they've um, created your, um, uh, your structures. Now, um, not a, these convertible modes, just going to finish off. Don't do these, these are terrible. Um, I just think they're just the biggest mess. You've got Division 7A issues um, in there. Um, I don't think that you have a cost base um, because you're not paying anything for them. So I think the employees get taxed first as income. Under 7A, and then they get taxed again as um, um, uh, when, when they sell them. So uh, I, I think I might stop there. <laughs>